This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Avi Fellman. Avi is young, but he has already had a successful career as a crypto investor. Earlier this year, he left Block Tower Capital to join Golden Tree as their head of digital assets trading. His ambition is to put crypto on TradeFi's map by bringing this large, well-known credit-focused asset manager to the forefront of our industry. We dive into his investment process, hiring Discord anons into Golden Tree, and how long-term thinking manifests in crypto markets. Please enjoy this great conversation with Avi Feldman. Avi, thank you very much for joining me today. I'm really excited to get the chance to sit down with you. Eric, thanks for having me. Your profile is from RuneScape, which I did not play, but the people that helped me prep for this were telling me it's a wise old man. And you've said that that game taught you everything you needed to know about crypto and to be careful with trust. This is just such an interesting theme of gamers that come to crypto, which we'll dive into a little bit later. But tell me a little bit more about RuneScape and how it teaches you everything you need to know about crypto. It was half a joke, but also entirely real at the same time. I started playing RuneScape back when I was nine years old in 2005. It's an entire world. It has its own economy. It has its own items. It's basically just open world. And one of the things that you could do while playing RuneScape that a lot of people ended up doing was called merching, which is basically a shorthand for trading. The way that you traded is you'd go to the city centers where banks were, and you'd try to hawk goods that you had either created yourself or bought somewhere else. You might go fishing and you get a bunch of lobsters and then you go to the bank and you go, I'm selling like 100 lobsters at 280 each. And sometimes there would be scenarios or areas of the world where lobsters are traded at a higher price and some areas where they trade at a lower price. So I found out very quickly, I could go buy them cheap in a certain area and then go to another area and sell them high. That was my first taste of arbitrage. It's funny because it's also a very adversarial place in the same way that crypto continues to be an adversarial place for market participants. There's a lot of information asymmetry. There's a lot of spoofing. There's a lot of unsavory conduct that can happen in the markets. That happened in RuneScape as well. I chose the wise old man as my avatar because he's one of my favorite characters of the RuneScape lore to remember where I came from, which is learning how to trade via a video game and then coming into the real world and figuring it out all over again. It's funny, we have this group chat called RS Crypto People. And there are so many people that play RuneScape in crypto. It's like a pipeline. You go to Andover and you go to Harbor, whatever the pipeline is. Same thing. You go play RuneScape, you go into crypto. I was just buying packs of gum and then breaking them up into individuals and selling them in school. So it was before I was going to chance to play RuneScape. Maybe we have a new interview question for a talent we're looking for. This gives you the level of how adversarial that game could be. People used to run scams where they'd get this really obscure item. They would get their friend 
to go stand at one end of the bank and you would stand at the other holding that item, you would say, hey, I'm selling this item for 50,000. And your friend would say, I'm buying this item for 100,000. So there'd be people that would sit in the middle and they'd see both messages and they'd go, wait, can I arb this? They'd buy the thing for 50,000. The thing was actually worth 10. And then they'd go to sell it to the guy that was saying he'd offer 100,000 and he's no longer there. An example of spoofing an ask that happens in crypto pretty frequently. All sorts of little things that happen that taught you how to deal with these adversarial situations, to always be skeptical, to always question what you see. And I think that's really important in crypto. To talk about crypto more broadly, I'll use ZK as an example of this. Maybe there are 50, 60 people in the world that really understand the math behind it and that really understand how it's going to work. So a lot of what you do as an investor, if you're not deeply technical, you can't look at the smart contracts yourself, you can't make the judgment yourself. You rely on information ingestion that you get from other people, from other sources. You rely on inference from how things seem to be working. A lot of that can be adversarial. There are a lot of people that try to take advantage of the people that don't do the work and just invest. Very easy to use buzzwords in crypto, very easy to mislead people with hype sounding stuff. And if you don't do the work, you end up making these mistakes. That's why it's actually really important to be able to think adversarially in crypto. This is not just crypto. This is true with any new technology. Any new technology comes out, there's going to be a small select group of people that understand it. And there are going to be a lot more people that are trying to make money on it and invest in it. In that scenario, you have to think adversarially because there are going to be so many people that are coming out with scams, trying to take advantage of the lack of knowledge. In crypto in general, that's definitely a mindset that I bring into it. The industry is immeasurably better and more professional than it was when I first got in in 2016. But it's not institutionalized at this point. I think a lot of people have this negative feeling that there's a group chat, super trader chat. You guys are the ones that have the lobsters and standing on other sides. How do you think about the average market participant trying to find an edge in that case? There's a tremendous amount of edge to be had. What I would definitely advocate is that the average participant, if you're not dedicating your job or your life to crypto, read deeply, think long-term, and invest broadly. There's so much that affects crypto day to day that unless you're in the information flow, unless you're in the Discord, checking Twitter, checking Telegram, you're watching market data come in. If you're trying to trade on short time horizons, you kind of need to be doing all those things. If you're investing on long time horizons, you don't necessarily need to. My view on crypto is long term. That's the original reason I got into the space. It was actually because I was looking at Ethereum. I realized that this was a transformative technology. Basically, all I've done for my entire career is crypto because I have full faith that at some point in the future, it's going to eat the world. 2017, people didn't really believe that. I graduated university in 2017. I went to go work at Capital One, doing strategy for them for about four months. Great job out of college. I quit after four months to do crypto full-time. I had already been in crypto for a bit at that point. Everybody looked at me like I was an insane person, which actually gave me a lot of confidence. My decision-making at the time was really twofold. It was one, I have a long-term view on this asset class that it's going to be massive and it's going to eat the world. And two, there was a little bit of uh, arbitrage that I was doing, not monetary arbitrage, but reputational arbitrage. So my thought process was this asset class is being ignored by smart people because they don't want to look stupid. I'm 22. I don't care if I look stupid. If you were around in 2018, 2019, even 2020, the biggest risk was always reputational. Everybody would say that. I like crypto, but there's so much reputational risk associated with it. That's gone away now. You don't really hear people say that anymore. That's because crypto has gotten to a place where people look at it like it's fintech. 
for people in college that go, oh, okay, I'll work in crypto after I graduate in the same way that people when I was graduating would go, oh, I'll go work in fintech after I graduate. All of this to say, there's a lot of edge day to day in crypto. There's so much inefficiency. There's so much insanity that goes on that I actually turned to trading back in 2017 because I saw the opportunity. I looked at the market and I said, this is crazy inefficient. None of this stuff actually works. I was manually arbitraging Litecoin on Binance to Coinbase, manually arbitraging like 15% differences. Those days are gone, but today it still exists. And there are a tremendous amount of examples of this, most of it around information ingestion. You go, oh, well, obviously this thing is going to reprice. Obviously this thing is going to do this. It's going to do that. Put in the work to understand how money flows in crypto. I trade because there is an opportunity to do it, but I'm here for the long term. And that's why I've dedicated my career to this. I love the reputational arbitrage point because I saw crypto throughout my career in TradeFi. And there were times where I was extremely dismissive. And then I got curious and then I got smarter about it. And I definitely saw people leaving and being castigated for taking such a risky, like, why would you go into that scams and drugs? Was there ever a point where you thought maybe this isn't going to work? Were you doubted? not just on price action, but like this actually is a long-term career. Did you ever think about leaving crypto? No, (laughs) to be honest with you, as it was going down as a strong believer, there was maybe a moment in time in 2018, I thought to myself, maybe I need to go get a job. I ended up getting a job in crypto. I never really lost faith in the tech. Once you use ETH for the first time, or once you use any of these applications for the first time, you just know that it's easier than using the traditional systems. It's hard to shake that. By the time it looked really bad, I built up so much institutional knowledge about crypto that I felt like it would be a waste to throw it away unless I truly didn't believe in crypto coming back one day. And I did. There are always trials and tribulations. The hardest part for a lot of people is not believing that this technology works and that it's here to stay. It's, is this the right allocation of your time? For a lot of people, the answer might have been no in 2018. If you were 35 years old and you had a great job, was it the best use of your time? Probably not. For me at the time, it was the best use of time, especially given if you looked at where I racked up my skill points. So you started trading at eight in RuneScape. You worked at a bank briefly, and then you moved around, started your own fund, and eventually ended up at Block Tower before your most recent gig at Golden Tree. How much of the learning during that time frame, as you left university and went into crypto trading, were you self-taught or was it taught by mentors or other peers in the space from learning from each other? There's a little bit of both. One thing that I've always optimized for in life in general is learning. When you look at my career trajectory and where I've worked, every single one of those decisions was made because I felt like I could make a quantum leap in my skill level and abilities. When you look at my trading and my knowledge of crypto, my crypto skill set was very much self-taught. I definitely learned a ton on managing a hedge fund at Block Tower. It was helpful to have Ari and Matt around who are great founders. They run a great shop at Block Tower. Now at Golden Tree, Golden Tree is a large traditional asset manager, manage $50 billion. And they have a lot of institutional knowledge, not so much knowledge in crypto, which is why I'm here and why I'm helping them out now but they have proven themselves to be one of the best credit funds in history. I looked at Golden Tree and what I realized very quickly is that as crypto matures and as crypto gets larger, it's going to look like traditional assets more and more over time. So if I want to remain competitive, having those types of resources and understanding how these people think 
is extremely important. And a lot of people, they go, isn't that against the ethos of crypto? The whole point is that it can't be co-opted. It doesn't matter if a large institution comes in and buys it. It doesn't matter if they try to impose their will on it. The whole point is that these systems are supposed to be resilient. What I viewed it as was actually the opposite. I viewed it as I get this opportunity to basically put crypto on the map, helping a large traditional hedge fund find its way in and start bringing in some real capital, some real usage, spread the gospel. One thing that people don't necessarily grasp is that a lot of the reason that things get adopted is through relationships. If you're at a hedge fund dinner, you turn to your buddy and you talk to them about crypto and they tell you that crypto is the next coming to Christ, then you're going to take that a little bit more seriously than if you read an article on it. As a way to get crypto more adopted, I thought that this was actually a pretty fantastic angle to teach Wall Street what crypto is all about. If you look at the operation we're running, it's kind of fun. Golden Chain is a subsidiary company under Golden Tree. The first three analysts that we hired were all from a DAO that I run called InternDAO. We brought on three analysts that basically were just doing crypto full-time anyway, that I had never met in person, that I just knew based on their anonymous names. Hey, by the way, we're going to hire a couple of people that I met on Discord. Like, what? Who's Discord? (laughs) Don't worry about it. There's a lot to unpack there. The first place I want to go is, before you left Block Tower, Ari was on the show, and I think of him as a long-term thinker. You describe yourself as a bi-directional trader. You're an investor in the space. You bet your career on crypto, but your trading style is a lot quicker. How do you define an investor and a trader? There's a really interesting thing here of why people think macro is usually just a bunch of bullshit is because there's a time horizon of an idea versus the time horizon of a trade, and they're usually mismatched. And so when people don't understand their ideas and the time they're going to put a trade on, they usually get blown up. So I'd be curious to talk about your style when you started at Block Tower and as a directional trader. That distinction is pretty difficult in crypto, especially just because things move so quickly. And also because there's a ton of liquidity in crypto relative to other asset classes. People get liquidity way faster than any other industry. You can go launch a project and have it be publicly traded immediately. Everybody turns from an investor into a trader in that type of environment. The way that I would describe it is when you think long-term about the asset class, you have to think in terms of themes as opposed to specific assets, because specific assets get repriced so quickly. A great example of this is, as a long-term thinker, I'm super bullish on the metaverse, super bullish on play to earn gaming. So let's say you invest in Axie Infinity at 20 cents. A year later, the thing's trading at 50 billion in one year. Are you going to just hold it because you have a long-term view? Or are you going to face reality and think to yourself, maybe $50 billion for this game is not a fair valuation. Because crypto reprices so quickly and tends to overshoot and undershoot, you can turn from a long-term investor into a short-term trader very quickly. So I don't necessarily differentiate the two. What I tend to think of is, what are my long-term views on where crypto is going? What are the themes that I think are accurate? There are all sorts of battling themes in crypto. Is the future of crypto going to be single-chain? Is it going to be multi-chain? The multi-chain world, if it exists, is it going to look like app chains, or is it going to look like bridges? Is play to earn the right model for games? Does it even make sense that play to earn should exist? If so, what form does that take? Will there be one overarching metaverse that is interoperable with everything? Or is there going to be billions of metaverses that are their own little thing and they're actually going to be silent? Is the application layer going to be value creative or is the base layer? 
So I think you can think long-term in themes, but it's actually quite dangerous to think long-term in terms of projects because what was valuable a year ago might not be valuable today because maybe it got disrupted. What was cheap a year ago might be crazy overvalued today. So you might need to reconsider your thesis. And what was working a year ago, maybe it's not working today. Things change very quickly. I love how you always give examples when you're trying to walk through ideas. What's an example of where you might have had a theme that's been the most surprising to you that it went against you or you changed your thinking around it? Major whiff on a theme was during DeFi summer. I was convinced that applications would accrue a lot more value than they ended up. Mid-2020 was the top of application valuations relative to L1 valuations. I'm personally of the opinion that that's going to trend back. I did correct myself at a certain point, the end of 2020, heading into 2021. I realized that that wasn't happening, at least at the moment in time. I was thinking a little bit too long-term about it and wasn't necessarily appreciating all the nuances of why applications may or may not retain value relative to L1s. So that was probably a theme that I whiffed on that changed that I was highly convicted in that I became less convicted in and then eventually ended up, at least in the short term, changing my mind. I do think that in the long term, that's still going to be the case. There are a lot of structural reasons why you ended up with L1s outperforming applications. It's easier to disrupt an application than it is to disrupt an L1. And it's easier if you're not an informed investor to go buy an L1s index, but the liquidity is much better on L1s than it is on applications. Going back to career progression, when you left Block Tower to go to Golden Tree, I've heard of Golden Tree because of the fixed income markets and their success as a credit shop. And you touched on this earlier, this idea of spreading the gospel and bringing the worlds together, which I'm a believer in. One of the hard things for me in crypto was I wasn't an anarchist. I didn't think it was going to overthrow, but I saw such amazing technology that if you knew how traditional finance actually worked, the operational underbelly, you'd throw up on yourself to figure out how a billion dollar bond trade would actually settle and move from point A to point B. But moving to Golden Tree, I'm sure you were recruited at lots of different hedge funds. You probably could have your pick of where you'd went. How did you think about Golden Tree versus all the other people that wanted you to come help build out a crypto arm? It's a good question. The answer is pretty straightforward. It's because they believed in it deeply. A lot of traditional finance people that come in, they look at crypto as a profit center. And that's not how I view crypto at all. When I spent time with Golden Tree, I sat down with them for a while. The main question that I kept coming back to is, okay, how much do you actually believe in this? Two reasons. One is if you don't really believe in it, that makes you prone to pulling the plug at the worst possible time. And two, if you don't really believe in it, then you're not going to invest the resources that you need to in order to build a successful crypto operation. You need to believe in it because it can be expensive to go build out what you need to in order to be successful. If you look at us, we hired three engineers right off the bat because having strong understanding of the tech is critical to being able to invest in. If you look at the operations, the backend, the compliance, credit to Joe, who's my partner in this operation, who is a senior partner at Golden Tree. He started their structured products business, fell down the rabbit hole in 2014, I think. So he was actually in crypto before me and has basically been teaching the rest of Golden Tree about crypto for a long time. He spent a long time teaching the ops team, teaching the legal team, getting everybody up to speed on crypto. That's an investment. It takes a while. I talked to them and what I realized was they really believed in it. They were willing to do it right. Let me hire people from Discord. Let me play in DeFi. Let me, if I want to, buy Shiba Inu, which we have. You can break that news. We don't want it anymore. I really vibe with the culture there. Also look at the broad swath of people and hedge funds that have entered into crypto. Almost every single one of them is trading tech 
or their macro fund and Golden Tree is neither. They do value and distressed debt and credit. The fact that they were willing to get into crypto, I thought was really dope. This is a credit to Steve and a credit to Joe. They viewed it from a value perspective, which I also thought was really great. So when things get scary, when things get distressed, Golden Tree is actually excited about it. When stuff goes down, everybody's going, all right, what are we buying? Nobody's running away. You're increasing your net exposure. You're not decreasing your net exposure when things get scary if you have the mindset of a distressed fund. And you can only have that mindset if you really think that these things have value, which I do. And now they do too, which is really nice. It's so fascinating to me. I'd love to be a fly on the wall. Maybe you can help us think about it. When I think of a golden tree, I think of Russia starting a war, bonds getting crushed, traditional buy sides puking them up, and golden tree always being the one that has a value, knows the model, wins like no one else can when the market disrupts itself. Seems highly fundamental. They know stories inside and out. They wait. And then when they pounce, they win. And then you walk in and pitch Shiba Inu. First of all, I'd love to know their cultural reaction, but then also your investment process of is Golden Chain so separate? Is there an investment committee? Is this something that has to go in front of the CIO or get sign-off of you're going to start adding dog coins to the risk portfolio? What is that like? It's funny you ask from the value perspective. And one of the largest conviction things in my mind when we picked it up was trading at a 10x price to sales. In June, there were a lot of things that were priced pretty reasonably because there was a lot of distress in the market. And so Golden Tree's framework came in and it was actually very valuable more than anything else, they have a very good framework for how to approach investing. There's a very rigorous process. It doesn't necessarily need to be value-oriented, but when you bring that type of rigorous process to crypto, you end up with interesting results. One of the greatest benefits of being at Golden Tree is they've got such a great investment process. When I sit down with Steve, who's a CIO of Golden Tree, has just so much insight on how to think about investing not just on this specific investment, this is what I think about it, but he's a heuristic machine in a way. Like This is how you should think about investing. That's extremely valuable no matter the asset class that you're in. And no matter who you are as a trader, that mindset is going to be super valuable. We make a lot of value bets. We also make our momentum bets in crypto. It depends on how you assign value to a project. What does value really mean? How do you value a crypto project? A lot of people look at it and they go, maybe it's revenues. Well, some things don't have revenues. So one model that I have in my head is network and community. When I look at Ethereum, when I look at Solana, when I look at any of these other L1s, one thing that I think about is it's kind of like the dollar. What does the dollar do? It gives you access to American goods. What does the Swiss franc do? It gives you access to the goods in Switzerland. What about crypto? What does Ethereum do? It gives you access to goods on Ethereum, access to products on Ethereum. And so that has some value in itself. Traditional currencies have taxes too, and that's a tremendous part of the value. You can pay taxes in them, but I think at least a portion of that is access to whatever they're producing. When I look at crypto, there are all sorts of different ways that you can value it and come to conclusions. When we even think about a catalyst trade, let's say that we have a piece of information that the market doesn't have, and the market doesn't have it because I haven't done the work. Meaning, have you read the blog posts? Have you read the discords? Sometimes this stuff doesn't actually get disseminated. What actually happens is that in a public chat, 20,000 people, the founder will say something that nobody quite understands the implications of. Sometimes it's even an offhand comment. And you're like, okay, that's interesting. Public, it's out there. Anybody can go see it, but do you understand it? If we find something like that, then we look at the project and we go, this thing's actually undervalued for that piece of information. Nobody quite understood what this means. I can give you some examples of this. Sushi Swap, for example, they were going under restructuring. There was a proposal that came out that was written by Wonderland. There was another proposal that was written by a different Wonderland a few months prior to that. 
different wonderland, highly confident dev group. And so when this proposal came out, for the first 10 minutes, nobody did anything because they thought it was a rehash of the old proposal. We got that information immediately. We're able to see that it was actually a reasonable proposal. If you have context on information, you can start to trade more effectively. And that's the kind of thing that works in the traditional equities as well. It's mosaic theory at the end of the day. It just so happens that instead of the mosaic theory being 10,000 different pieces in the world of equities, it's like three pieces and they're all on Discord in crypto. So it's a lot easier to do. From a long-term investment perspective, that's easy to sell. And the nice part is everybody is now savvy on crypto, so they get it. About that process of digesting that information, we've talked about in the past, but I don't know if people appreciate that at a traditional shop, you have a lot of resources. You have analysts, you've got quants, you've got engineers. But I'm always curious, now that you're in a leadership position, but you're running crypto there, you have people reporting up to you. So when you bring people in, how do you think about training them or building discipline or a culture to help you digest all of this information? Because you say it's Discord and Telegram, but when I listen to you and how many things you go through per day, it's remarkable how much information you're digesting from all of these non-traditional resources. So how do you build a team to scale Avi? One of the hardest things about being an analyst is not gathering the information. It's knowing what information matters. When you're putting together a trade, when you're putting together a pitch, it's about figuring out what actually matters for that trade. We have an internal policy here that no pitch should be longer than one page. If you can't fit it on a page, you don't understand it or you don't understand what really matters. We can turn around things very quickly here. A lot of people like to write these long, meandering theses on why they believe something and I zone out. Every 20-page paper I've ever read can be a five-page paper. One thing I like to tell the analysts on my team is brevity wins every time. I'm pretty good at gathering information. I'm trying to teach other people now how to gather that information and then how to figure out what matters. I built out this robust investment process that I actually think is IP, so I won't go too deep into it. But we use templates excessively. We use statistical analysis excessively. We have public discussions and we're constantly in collaboration. We use very collaborative tools. So for example, as information is being gathered, I can actually see that information being gathered and leave comments on that information. This is what you've gathered so far. Here where the holes are. Let's discuss it. Let's gather it. This is where you might want to look. And then we drill down. Price is a function of what? Of all the information that you've gathered, what do you think the most important thing is for price appreciation? And that varies very widely in crypto. Sometimes the most important thing for price appreciation is futures position. Like you look at Celsius token. If you went into a coma in 2019 and you came out and I told you that Celsius was bankrupt and I asked you to guess how much their token was worth, you wouldn't guess a billion, but it was worth a billion four days ago. It's wild. It's insane. And the whole reason is because people were paying too much to be short. When you look at something like that, you have to ask yourself, well, what is the most important input to price? For Celsius token, it's futures positioning. It's not fundamental value. It's not anything else. It's futures positioning. Sometimes it's structural flows. What did Bitcoin do in 2021? It traded really well during the hours of 9 to 5 p.m. and traded pretty poorly outside of those hours. Why? Because a lot of people were TWAPing during U.S. hours, U.S. funds. Turns out that time zone is an important input. Kind of weird, but it's true statistically. When you look at this asset class, what you realize very quickly is that the types of inputs change. Another example of this is Polkadot versus Adam. I tweeted about this. Adam has a lot more usage. It has a similar model to Polkadot. Polkadot hasn't really had much uptake, but Polkadot's trading at 2x the valuation. Why? I won't get into it, but if you find reasons why something is trading at a discrepancy like that, and you believe that those reasons are going away, then you can find good trades. You can find really good inefficiencies and you can find really good opportunities. 
So that's something that I think about all the time is one of the most important inputs to price. Sometimes they help you structure trades. Sometimes they help you find a trade. Sometimes they're not exactly what you think they are. I think in the short run, the answer is almost always flows. Long run, the answer is almost always fundamentals. So when you're doing that with your analysts, they're populating a template. You guys are doing research real time, which seems really cool. They're giving you a catalyst or a driver. Are you setting time horizons or how do you handle the risk? You went long Celsius. I think that's a great example because everyone is short Celsius in the futures market. The spot market was dropping because you think it's bankrupt, it's going to zero. But if you had bought it up, you did incredibly well on a bankrupt company. So your analyst comes to you and says that. If it starts to move against you, do they give time horizons? How do you think about working out of a trade when something's not going the right way? It depends very heavily on the trade itself. And that's why identifying the inputs to price are so important. You have to understand what takes you out of the trade. You have to understand when you're invalidated. If you have all of these inputs and these inputs are going exactly the way that you think they should be going and price isn't doing it for you, then you fundamentally misunderstood something about why that was a good trade, in which case you probably don't have edge and you probably shouldn't be in the trade. That's very important. When you get in, we have what we call KPIs. It's what are the things that we think need to go well in order for the trade to go well. And if those things aren't going well, then we get out of the trade, even if price is going well, because again, it means we don't have edge and we're just getting lucky. Price is going down, obviously, then we're just wrong. Or if they're going really well and price isn't doing anything, then again, we don't understand the trade. So we get out. We don't have edge. Makes sense. When you think about separating alpha and beta, and I thought this was a really interesting question. Another hedge fund manager told me back in 21, 22 is how to pay people. When you think about valuing analysts or other traders or PMs, and you're wondering, well, they got the trade right or did the market just kind of move in their favor? How do you think about the separation of alpha and beta? Yeah, it's just outperformance versus the market. Quality of ideas and quality of thought, that's what matters the most to me. How good has their investment process been and how successful have they been go hand in hand? The reason that I don't like doing it just on PL is for that reason, it's sometimes hard to separate beta from alpha. Sometimes you have a really good analyst that just goes through a six-month cold streak, but they're really good. I don't want to screw them over if just so happen to go through a cold streak. If their process is good, their clarity of thought is good, everything else is good. Maybe it's just you got to give people some time. The way that I think about alpha versus beta is outperformance relative to your benchmark. Things have a beta to Bitcoin. Things have a beta to Ethereum. If we buy something and it trades in line with its beta, it outperforms, then that was probably just beta. If it really rips, it's totally outperforming its beta, then great. We got some alpha in there too. Especially in crypto, it's generally pretty easy to figure out if you've generated alpha or if you're just writing beta. I know people find that like heresy. They're like, wait, no, but everything rips together. I tell people, yeah, but not really. Like Solana was so clearly alpha relative to the rest of the market. Look at the performance of Polkadot, performance of Atom, you look at the performance of any of these old L1s, that was alpha. People have this weird hindsight bias where they go, oh, well, that was so easy. Avalanche ripped, Solana ripped, like everything ripped. Look at Tezos, darling of 2017, EOS, Polkadot, Cosmos, even look at Bitcoin. There's some assets at 100x and there's some assets at 10x. That is a massive difference. There's a little bit of cherry picking. Yes, that kind of goes to a tweet you had a couple of weeks ago. This should be fairly obvious, but in case it isn't, the entire market is based off the bid for Ethereum right now. The reason why it's interesting is because I think most people consider Bitcoin so everything's priced off of. And it feels like that. Like Ethereum's obviously been performing well. What did you mean by that? And if you can dive more into like this can be lucrative, but not always. Basically, what I mean is that in order for crypto to go up, you need buyers of all the assets, not just of one asset. The way that I saw the market trade was that everybody was buying Ethereum and everything else that was being bought 
were people taking profit on Ethereum and then going and buying other things. There wasn't a large swath of new money coming in and buying up other assets. Basically, all the new money was buying Ethereum, and Ethereum was also tracking NASDAQ and S&P at the same time. What that means is that the moment people stop buying Ethereum, the whole thing collapses. When I look at the reasons why people are buying Ethereum, one reason is the S&P. Okay, well, I don't know how long that's going to last. Another reason is the merge. A lot of people are buying for the merge. If the merge is a sell the news event because the market is driven by Ethereum, you're probably going to see a lot of pain. Not just in Ethereum, you're going to see a lot of pain everywhere in Bitcoin and Ethereum and Solana and Avax. Everything is going to fall down the respect. I'm not suggesting that it's going to be a sell the news. I happen to think it probably will be, not financial advice. But my personal view on this is that you have to be really careful in these areas. You have to trade very tactically. If you're not exposed, this is not the right time to go balls to the wall. This is not the right time to say, I'm going to go shove all of my chips on the table because it looks like the market's holding in there. What I'm telling you is that the fact that the market is holding in is kind of an illusion. Ethereum is holding in. The market's not really holding in. What you need for the market to hold in is you need real new money. I don't actually see that right now. It could come the longer that Ethereum holds up. Let's say S&P stays above 4,000. Maybe the Fed pivots and everybody's happy again. Then new money starts coming in. But basically, until then, if you're a trader, you have to be a little cautious. You can't be all out. Definitely want to dive into the merge talk. But just at a high level, because you've mentioned it a couple of times, what can an average person, not someone working at Golden Tree, do to track flows or have an idea of this is just rotational money versus new money coming in? Well, I'll just give three things that are very simple and straightforward. Just look at the spot to futures volume across all assets. Futures are generally traded by speculators, not new money. Spot is generally traded by new money. Watch the ratio of those two. If you look at Ethereum, what you see is that the ratio of futures volume has gone through the roof. You can actually check Google searches for this. Go look up what are search results for how to buy Ethereum look like? How to buy Bitcoin? How to buy Aave? How to buy Solana? How to buy AVEX? Generally look at correlations in the market. The larger correlations are between the macro markets and the crypto markets, the less new money is flowing in. It just means that there's less idiosyncratic bid. And so the higher the correlations, the weaker the market is. This doesn't mean high correlation means weak market, low correlation means strong market. I wouldn't use that to trade. What I would use is the change in the correlations. If you have a really high correlation and it starts to drop dramatically in the span of two weeks, that's a sign. I'm not saying wait until the correlations go to zero because I think definitely by that time, everything will have ripped. What I'm saying is watch the changes in correlation. It definitely resonates with how the market's trading right now. You have this new phrase that I like, Dan has hot ball of money and you had tiny warm ball of money. It seems like a boring time in the market right now. Thinking about the merge or other ideas, what are you focused on in the current time? I'm thinking about what are the implications of the merge. You have a few things that are coming out. After the merge goes through, you've kind of lost narrative. The crypto market is a very narrative-based market. People like to latch on to the next big upcoming thing. And so after the merge, the crypto market's bereft of a narrative. Generally, when that happens, a new one will emerge. One of the things that I see is actually app chains and interchain messaging. So things like Atom are actually gaining a lot of traction right now. I think the reason behind this is that Ethereum is the big daddy single state chain. Merge goes live, updates and upgrades and improvements to single state chains. You're basically looking out six to eight months, maybe for Aptos and Sui to come out. Maybe they'll offer marginal improvements, but it feels like you've reached the end in a way for at least the big daddy upgrade. So let's see how that plays out. If there is any semblance 
of gas costs being super high on Ethereum after the merge, people will start to look at app chains again. That's one thing that I'm considering. The other is L2s are obviously going to get a big boost. The narrative that gets pushed is that L2s are going to be the next big thing after the merge because that's where all the activity is going to go because people are going to be so gung-ho on Ethereum that everybody's going to go build on L2s. So I think that could be interesting. I don't want to say that the merge is a non-event, but it doesn't radically improve scalability of Ethereum. Really what it does is it improves the flows, so it reduces inflation a ton, and then it provides better ESG angle. Those are the two things. There are actually a lot of chains out there that are already proof of stake. So Ethereum moving to proof of stake is like, good job, dude. A lot of people are freaking out about it. And the reality is it's not like it's this groundbreaking, amazing, incredible achievement that's going to radically bring a bunch of new people into crypto because Ethereum is going to go scale a billion times. It's like you built it wrong and now you're fixing it. (laughs) I do think that it's going to lead to outperformance over Bitcoin because what ends up happening is the flows for Ethereum start to look a lot better. We end every show with the same question. What are you most excited to see build or build over the next six months? And what are you excited to see over the next six years? Over the next six months, I'm super psyched to bring Golden Tree into the forefront of crypto. Six months from now, people are going to be talking about Golden Tree and crypto the same way that they talk about Paradigm, Polychain, all these other guys as very serious contenders and people that really get crypto. And in six years, I'm excited for most of Golden Tree's business to be touching crypto in some way. Awesome. We'll have you back to check in on it. Those are great ending thoughts. Avi, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. That was awesome, Eric. Thank you again. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 